Well, we're going to focus on that gospel reading this morning about the rich man and Jesus. We're not going to have a lot of introductory material about this. We're going to jump right in, but it is interesting that the only information that Mark's gospel gives us about this guy, the only biographical information we get really are, is that he has great possessions. He has many possessions. Other gospels tell us he was young. Another gospel tells us he was a ruler. But Mark just says he's rich. He has great possessions. And so right at the beginning of this passage, there is a lot to commend this man, this rich man. There's a lot that commends him. Jesus started on his way, and a man ran up to him and fell at his knees, on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So we know from the context here that this man seeks eternal life. He has recognized a need in his life, and that in and of itself is unusual. We need to realize that most people do not feel any need for God. Particularly, I would say today, most people do not feel any need for God. If there is a God-shaped void in people's lives, they haven't heard about it. The world is full of happy pagans. Believe me, I know them. <laughs> and if you tell them that they don't really know that they're not happy, you don't realize you're not happy. Uh, at best, you will be politely dismissed and probably more appropriately rebuked for, for knowing their inner being in a, in better than they themselves know it. Uh, the late Michael Spencer, he wrote under the moniker the Internet Monk, and he passed away several years ago. But he said this. He said, Scripture tells us that if there is a God-shaped void, we will rarely see or encounter it in obvious ways. What we will see is a race, a race, the human race, numb and dead, a planet of people refusing to think about God, to think about God except in idolatrous, self-serving terms, a world of people who see no more relevance to the gospel than to a thousand other things that make absolutely no sense or have no claim upon a person at all. And that is the truth expressed in Scripture. We hear that in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Many of us learn to quote this verse. This is what the Scripture says. There is no one righteous, not even, not even one, not even one. There is no one who understands. And then it says this, no one who seeks God. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one no one who seeks God. This is a core truth that the reformers uh, brought out again and again. Is that, and actually, they're relying on St. Augustine, who was writing in the 400s. But it goes like this, is that in ourselves, we have no desire to seek God. If we even desire to seek God, that itself is a gift. It's called prevenient grace. That desire itself to seek God is a gift of God. The human heart is so bent towards itself, so bent towards evil, we will not on our own seek God, which means that really back when this was all in vogue, back in the 90s and maybe early 2000s, you heard about the seeker-sensitive church movement. There were never really, if this is true, there were never really any seeker-sensitive churches, only consumer-friendly churches. But not only did this rich man recognize his need, he recognized who could meet his need. He enthusiastically seeks out Jesus. He, 
He has great theology. He looks for Jesus, and then he throws himself at Jesus' feet. He's zealous. He has enthusiastic piety. He calls Jesus good in a way reserved for God alone. Wow! He obviously got there before the Council of Chalcedon, confessing the two natures of Christ. One person, two natures, a fully man, fully divine. He had led a morally exemplary life in a way that he, without, I don't think there's any irony or even self-delusion when he says, all these have I kept since my youth. And the text says that Jesus looked at this man and he loved him. He loved him. Jesus recognized the real sincerity and earnestness in this young man. You know, there are only two passages in all of Mark's gospel where the word love appears. It'll come up again here in a few weeks in the, in the uh, Mark chapter 12 where Jesus gives the great commandment. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's one place where, G- where the word love is mentioned in Mark's gospel. The only other place where the word love is used is here in this passage in Mark 10. Jesus looked at him and loved him. I think that's significant. So surely this man is a disciple, right? Well, no, he's deficient. He lacks. Jesus says, you lack. With all he had going for him, the rich man still failed in his quest for eternal life. And as far as we know, he never entered the kingdom of heaven. I like how the New International Version translates this passage. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. I think the uh, ESV that we read this morning just said he was sad. He was sad. I think this is more expressive. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. He had great wealth. He could not enter the kingdom of God because he was possessed by his possessions. And the New Testament continuously warns us against the power that money and possessions have to prevent us from entering the kingdom of God. Jesus himself repeatedly warns against the power wealth has to be an obstacle in our lives. So we hear it again in this passage. It's, uh, this is Mark 10, 23, verses, uh, 23 through 27. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I'll just stop right there. And some of you have heard from some pulpit or read on some devotional that the eye of the needle was a gate in Jerusalem that was so small that you had to bend over to get through. And that was, the, that was called the eye of the needle. And camels carrying, uh, could not carry anything into Jerusalem. They had to get down on their knees and go through that eye of the needle to get in. Hogwash! Hogwash! Malarkey! There never was such a thing. That was made up in the 800s by a monk. There was never such a gate. Jesus literally means it's easier for a camel to get squeezed through the eye of a needle than it is for rich people to go to heaven. That's what he means. And that's why the disciples are astonished. And that's when it says here in Mark's gospel, and they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? 
Jesus looked at them and said, with man it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Brothers and sisters, everyone in this room is a camel, me included, but all things are possible with God. With us, salvation is impossible, and that's why we have a Savior. That's why we need Jesus. So the disciples couldn't believe what they were hearing. Riches are an obstacle for, for, for salvation. Jesus is saying, if you're wealthy, you probably won't enter the kingdom of God. He's declaring that riches are not a guaranteed sign of God's favor or blessing. Yet this assumption that the disciples had, this is exactly the assumption that they held, that riches, that wealth was a, indeed a sign of God's blessing, of God's favor. It was, you know, if you're wealthy, then obviously you're getting into the kingdom of heaven. That comes from what was called the Deuteronomistic, Deuteronomistic worldview. Wealth and health were signs of God's blessing for keeping the covenant. And you know, many people still hold this view today, but Jesus flips that assumption on its head. Our riches are dangerous because they are the means by which we can pretend to live independently from God. Our wealth gives us the, the fiction to be, that we can believe to be independent, that we can live independently from God. We think, think of why we desire money, or we, we desire the security that we believe it brings, or the pleasure, or the peace. We desire wealth because it's such a satisfying substitute for God. It pretends to give what we need from God, but it leaves us in control. Another thing that often happens when this uh, passage is preached is that you know, there's usually some kind of disclaimer along the lines, well, of course, you know, Jesus didn't tell everybody to sell everything they had and give to the poor, but he might tell somebody, y'all. It is a possibility. It could happen to me. It could happen to you. We're not off the hook. <laughs> and if we do that, then we will definitely be living like God is in control. You know, we can have enthusiasm. We can have great theology. This man did. We can desire to honor Jesus. We can live morally good lives. But if we do not surrender, yes, our material possessions to the lordship of Jesus Christ without reservation, our material possessions to the lordship of Jesus Christ without reservation, we are not his disciples. No exclusions to that. And Jesus' cure for the power wealth had in this man's life was sacrificial giving, and that's still the cure today. We, we teach and preach, and, and I think many of us are living this at Christ Church. Radical generosity, sacrificial giving. We consciously place our possessions under the lordship of Christ. You see, this rich man desired salvation but he failed because he didn't desire Christ's lordship he failed because he desired salvation from Jesus but he did not desire the lordship of Jesus he was willing to do anything to inherit eternal life except surrender to Jesus Christ things have not changed but we cannot accept Christ as savior and reject him as lord if we choose to follow Christ in our day, the things standing in the way of following Jesus for us may not be material wealth. In fact, I think there are other factors, probably more, 
compelling in our lives of material wealth that stand in the way. They are usually things that give us what wealth provided for the rich man, though. Things like, listen, prestige. His wealth provided prestige. Social standing. Security. A sense of being approved of. You know, brothers and sisters, that's not just the purview of wealth in our culture. Right now, we find that there is a, 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 almost a gravitational pull for believers to adopt the ideologies and values of our secularizing society, and particularly ideas and values of the world that grant, grant us those things like prestige and social standing and a sense of being approved of. But these very values that we're being seduced to follow are at odds with God's word and the Christian faith. Jesus said, go renounce the zeitgeist and take up the shame of following me. Um, sadly, we just had a church out in Tennessee leave our denomination because uh, our our biblical stance on, on issues that the world right now finds uh, particularly irritating. And they surrendered to the zeitgeist. And I'm sure they felt very righteous about doing that. The biblical truth is that to follow Jesus Christ is to surrender every iota of our existence to him. He claims all of us. And that's what it means to be a disciple. We can, you can be a religious person. You can be a spiritual person. You could be biblically literate but, literate. but if we do not surrender our need for the approval of man or our need to fit in with the cool kids on the issues of the world today, we cannot be his disciple. The rich man failed in his search for eternal life because he wanted to enter God's kingdom on his own terms. And because of the desire to enter the kingdom of God on his own terms, he falls under the judgment of God. And I want us to see that in this passage. This is what God's judgment looks like, okay? Are you ready? There really is gospel in this passage, but you have to get through the law to get to the gospel. It says, at this the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. That's judgment. You see, God's judgment in time and eternity is that he gives us exactly what we want. Listen to me. God's judgment in this life and in eternity is that he tends... There are other kinds of judgment, yes. But the standard means God has of judging us is to give us exactly what we want if it's not him, other than him, and all that goes along with that. This man desired his possessions more than Jesus, and Jesus lets him have exactly that. Jesus lets him walk away. C.S. Lewis wrote in The Great Divorce, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Lewis continues, all that are in hell chose it. All that are in hell chose it. You see, God's judgment is the mirror of his love. God loves you and me so much. He won't make us, he will not, he sovereignly deems not to force us to love him back. 
He loves us so much, he does not force us to love him back. If you want to live apart from God, he will let you. God is a loving God. That's why there is a hell. Jesus Christ did not see the young man go away sad and then run up behind him and do a flying tackle and drag him back. Jesus will not drag us kicking and screaming into the kingdom of heaven if we don't really want to be there. But in all that, Jesus loves people who walk away from him. He loved this man. Jesus loves people who turn away from the hard path of discipleship. And that means we should too if we want to be like Jesus. Jesus loved this man. Sarah Henlicky Wilson says, He's the only person in the entire Gospel of Mark singled out as being loved by Jesus. He is the only person, the only person singled out in all of Mark's gospel where it says Jesus loved him is the one that walks away from him. But there is such good news here. There is gospel here. And here it is. We hear it in that discourse with the disciples. But Jesus basically says this, you can never give up more than God will give you. Do you desire approval? The approval of God is infinitely more wonderful, satisfying, permanent, and life-giving than seeking the approval of men. If you want to see how dangerous and toxic seeking the approval of men is, just watch people on social media, people who are social media producers, like on TikTok or any, any other means where there's just this voracious need to be approved of, and particularly our young people and particularly young women are being devoured by that need for approval. Jesus offers a, an infinitely better approval of a loving Heavenly Father. So do you desire approval? You can have that and better. Whatever the world says it can give you, Jesus can give it better. Jesus promises that in this life and beyond this life, we will experience God's richness and blessing. Once we lay aside our besetting possessions and our petty idols, we will wonder why we clung to those things so long and why we once craved them so much. Do you desire security? There's nothing more secure than the everlasting arms. So that no matter what your circumstances are, you still have security in God. Do you desire, desire peace? He gives peace that passes all understanding. Do you desire comfort? He's the God of all comfort. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Mark chapter 10, verses 28 and 30. Peter began to say to him, See, we left everything and followed you. And I don't think this is a boast. I think it might all almost be a, a cry of exasperation. Jesus is telling them how hard it is to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Peter says, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. And then I think Jesus turns back and looks in love at Peter and says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a, hun a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. 
Jesus offers us life that is full, satisfying, and exciting. Our wealth, our approval, our security, our fulfillment lies in relationship with the Holy Trinity and with our brothers and sisters in the community of the kingdom of God. That's where it is. And so whatever may be drawing us away from that deep satisfaction, I love what the prophet Isaiah writes, and we'll close with this. God speaks to us. This is the Almighty speaking. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come and buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Brothers and sisters, in the moment, we will come to the Lord's table, and as we do, eat what is good, and let your soul delight in abundance. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.